Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the elders on staff here, and it's uh, just a joy to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series through uh, the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 15. That's Psalm 15, and uh, we're in the series, Songs of the Great King. While you're turning there, just one thing that I want to uh, remind you of, um, that is for all of you women, uh, the Women's Bible Study, which is on Wednesday mornings, 9.15. Child care is provided. Started back up last week, and so uh, if you're available and interested in that, uh, want to remind you of it. And all the contact information for Karen uh, is in the bulletin as well. And so uh, I think that will be um, just a, a wonderful and encouraging time if you're able to uh, participate in that. Okay, uh, Psalm 15. Uh, follow along as I read this, and uh, this is the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, worship you and to declare your goodness and your majesty and your grace. And we pray as we consider your word this morning, your truth, that you would incline our hearts and open our eyes, that you would give us understanding and, Lord, please satisfy us with your word and with your promises. Father, we entrust this time to you now, and it's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Asking the right question makes all the difference. Asking the right question will get you to the right answers, but you have to ask the right question in order to get the right answers. Now, this could be in small things or it can be in big things, a small thing. For example, Take uh, a little trip to the DMV, and you'll want to make sure that you ask the right questions. Uh, uh, Many of you are probably aware that this year um, that the the law has changed. I don't know if it's federal, state, what it is, but um, for a lot of the standard New York licenses, um, they will no longer work as of October to allow you to pass through security to get on domestic flights or to get into federal buildings, et cetera. So my wife and I have been talking about how we don't really want to carry our passport around for domestic flights or other form of identification. So we're considering uh, moving from that basic New York State driver's license to one of the other options. It could be the real ID or it can be the enhanced version. And so uh, we've been talking about it for quite some time, but we've been kind of dragging our feet with it because it will require us to take a trip to the DMV. And so I'm preparing myself. I mean, I think it's going to take just months of mental preparation for this trip. 
And, and I've already been weighing and considering the right questions to ask in order to prepare for my 17 hours at the DMV office. And so some questions you'd want to ask are, you know, what license, what form of identification do I actually need uh, in order to get on those domestic flights? Some other questions, um, what documents do I need to bring to the DMV? Um, what form do I need to fill out? Do I need to fill out form uh, 1038A or 1033A or 1038B? Because that makes all the difference. How do I ensure that I don't have to spend 17 hours in the DMV office? Um, how do I uh, make an appointment? I've heard that you can make an appointment. I've been kind of lamenting this trip to others, and, and others say that they've had some good experiences. Hopefully, that will be mine. Uh, uh, or a big thing that you may want to ask uh, uh, the right questions for. Um, what college you're going to go to? You, you may want to ask, um, how close do I want to live uh, to home? What career path do I want to take? Is there financial aid available? How much student loan debt will I incur? Fun fact, as of now, like today, um, it's still expected that you actually pay back student loans. Now, those are important questions. Uh, or uh, maybe... You're dating someone, and you think this person might be the one. Well, hopefully, your friends or your parents or your church family will help you ask the right kind of questions as you're weighing that, as you're considering it, so that you can get the right answers. And those right questions are significantly more important than you know, how their eyes twinkle in the moonlight. Well, what we see in Psalm 15 is a very important question. Some would say the most important question. It's the right question that gets us to the right answers. It's found in Psalm 15, 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, it's a significant question. It's actually two questions, but all kind of getting at the same thing. Significant question, where eternity literally hangs in the balance. As Nate was talking about earlier, it's a question that asks, who can live in God's presence? What qualifies us to stand before Him? Who can know God face-to-face, -face, now and forever? And then the psalm's going to give an answer to that question. And just to get all the cards on the table, uh, the answer to the question is that righteousness is required to dwell in God's presence. Righteousness is required to have fellowship with God. And um, it's a pretty simple outline. It's five verses. We see the question in verse 1. We see the answer to the question in verses 2 through 5. We're going to consider the fulfillment, and then we're going to see the promise in the very last line of the psalm. Question, the answer, the fulfillment, and the promise. Okay, let's consider the question just a little bit more. Once again, verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill. That tent, it's referring to the tabernacle, that uh, portable shrine 
that the nation brought through the desert, the holy hill. It was a place near Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant would lie. The, the tent, the holy hill, it's, it's figurative. It's, it's metaphorical, referring to the presence of the Lord. The tent represented God's dwelling with His people. And so it is asking, what kind of people can dwell with the Lord? What kind of people can abide, remain in His presence? What kind of people can have fellowship with Him? And this psalm is going to tell us who God's people are. Now, as I've already said, it's hard to fathom and think of a more important question than this. It's a question that matters for eternity. It it gets at the very heart of our existence. As you and I, who were made in the image of God, we were created to love and know and represent God. And we're familiar with the the meta-narrative, but we sinned. We rebelled against God. That fellowship was broken, and the good news of the gospel communicates the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ that restores us back into God's presence. Well, we're going to see the answer in Psalm 15 version, the psalmist's version, of, of how we get back to God's presence, how we remain, how we dwell in His presence. And, and the answer, verses 2 through 5, it's an interesting way to answer it. Um, because what you have here, um, you, you might expect like the answer might be in, in some form of um, religious observance. You know, uh, go to church weekly, say your prayers daily, uh, don't eat, drink, and chew, or date girls who do, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, or maybe we'd expect to find some type of like uh, required ethnicity, you know, like an a ethnic elite, or maybe some education level, uh, an intellectual elite, or maybe um, it's the answer to the question you might expect, like some experience of God. Uh, we could call it like a mystical elite. And yet, how the psalmist answers the question is he gives these, these ten characteristics and we're going to see the answer to the question is, is primarily in terms of character. And we're going to see that, that, that godliness, righteousness, that is how you dwell on His holy hill. That is how you sojourn in His tent. That is how you remain in His presence. And these ten characteristics, um, they in many ways flesh out our daily lives. It's important corporate worship, what we do on Sunday morning, but, but this psalm is going to answer the question in terms of what the rest of the afternoon Sunday through Saturday night look like as well for us. And so, uh, we'll see the first three of ten characteristics in his answer to the question of who may dwell in his presence in verse 2. Here it is, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That's how he begins to answer the question. He who walks blamelessly. This is someone who walks, who lives in a way 
that is consistent with the Lord's commands. Who they are in public is who they are behind closed doors. What is happening outside in your actions, your decisions, is what's going on inside. It's blameless, uh, above reproach, and does what is right. What's right? What's God's standard? It's God's law. I mean, it's someone who, as, a, as we're working through catechisms with our kids, um, one of the, the questions is, what is sin? It's any transgression of the law of God. What is meant by transgression? Doing what God forbids. Does what is right. This is a person who, who doesn't transgress, doesn't, doesn't do what God forbids, doesn't violate the law of God. I mean, already, just in the, the first line, in response to the question, we see an incredibly high standard. And that high standard, the requirement of what it takes to dwell in God's presence. He who walks blamelessly, that's who can dwell in God's presence. He who does what is right, he who speaks truth in his heart. Now, that word truth, uh, it's something that is, is reliable, it's something that's dependable. It's something that corresponds with reality. Uh, we all um, live, work, play in the same culture, and um, we know that increasingly in our culture, it's becoming much more uh, accepted and popular and common for people to uh, review or, or use phrases such as my truth or your truth in order to refer to, to different versions of truth. And people say my truth to all sorts of things. Uh, could be even things like, like history and science, and ethics, and religion. Now, uh, of course, we're certainly entitled to hold our own opinions but we're not entitled to hold our own versions of truth, for it is impossible for more than one version of truth to exist. Dr. Burke Parsons, I think, helpfully summarizes what's going on in our culture and how it relates to Christianity. I've got a little bit of a longer quote here, but he refers to this, you know, my truth, your truth. He calls it conceptualism. He says, this new way of thinking embodies conceptualism. The philosophical mindset of conceptualism has emerged as a way for us to engage with other people with whom we disagree and yet get along. Conceptualism provides people with a way to create their own personally conceived realities of truth so that they can believe whatever they want to believe and deny whatever they choose to deny in accordance with their own concept of truth, even if their own conceived reality has no basis in what is, in fact, reality. While conceptualism, he goes on to say, itself is manifesting itself in devastating ways in the world, it is proving to be downright deadly in the church. 
We see this way of thinking most abundantly in the way people speak of God. It has become common for people to speak of my God and your God, saying things in defense of their view of who their God is and what their God would do or couldn't do, such as, my God isn't a God of wrath, my God is only a God of love, or my God wouldn't do that, your God might, but not my God. But since we are not entitled to our own versions of the truth, we are not entitled to our own versions of God. We are not entitled to our own version of what God does or who God is. We are to follow, he says, the one true God. And we cannot create Him in our image or according to our own conceptualized reality of who we think He should be. There is one God, and we are not Him, and there is no other. The end of verse 2 where it says he, he speaks truth in his heart. It's not saying that you define truth based on what you're feeling in your heart. It's someone who does not um, get thrown, tossed to and fro. It, it's someone who keeps themselves from being deceived by the world by pursuing the Lord through His truth, His Word. It's someone who clings to true truth. It's unfortunate that I even have to define truth with the word true in front of it. But it's someone who clings to true truth and speaks true truth in their heart in order to protect themselves from being tossed to and fro. Who can dwell on your holy hill? He walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. And then he's going to get into some, some interpersonal things, some relational things. Fourthly, he says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. who does not slander with his tongue. Slander, as I'm sure you're familiar with, is, is gossiping, saying damaging gossip or spreading damaging gossip um, that is usually untrue or at best unverified. And it uh, destroys and brings great harm to the person being slandered. It's saying things behind people's backs. It's saying things about people who are not in the room. And as an important and related aside, I mean, the church, brothers and sisters, you know, this is no place for gossip and slander. It's so easy to fall into. It's so easy to catch ourselves doing it. But we have enough trouble in the world, in our everyday lives, to waste our time telling each other what is wrong with another brother or sister in Christ. James 4.11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Slander 
and focuses on another person's uh, warts and pimples, while love covers over a multitude of sins. Slander um, takes an uncharitable evaluation of someone. It does not give someone the benefit of the doubt. And so let's be charitable in our evaluations of others, especially of those in the church. Let's give one another the benefit of the doubt when we're evaluating some action or some decision or some words that are spoken. The psalmist writes that um, the godly, the righteous, they do not slander and they do, do no evil to their neighbor. Evil, it, it means uh, doing harm or, or causing pain. And Jesus tells us who our neighbor is. Our neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's anyone whom the Lord places in front of us at that time. It's someone who's made in the image of God. It's someone who has a soul. And so when you say, when it says, does no harm to their neighbor, it, it seeks to do good to whom those God has placed in our lives. Now, we know that at times it may be necessary to um, offer a painful criticism. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So it doesn't mean that you're like, yes men or yes women. It doesn't mean that you always flatter. But it always, as an outcome, has the good of their neighbor in mind. And then it says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. I mean, briefly, this communicates to us that friendship and loyalty are important to God. That the godly do not turn their backs on their friends, do not betray their friends, and they honor, they uphold, they're committed to the relationships, whether it be familial, friendship, co-workers, etc. They're committed to those relationships, and they will give honor to the people whom the Lord has placed in their lives. I mean, that's, that's the first, character, first six characteristics of, you know, what does it take to dwell in God's presence? What does it take to have fellowship with Him? It's people who does, do these things. And then we see seven and eight in verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to their own hurt and does not change. That seventh characteristic um, to summarize in a statement, the godly are people who love what God loves and hate what God hates. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That word vile literally means rejected. In whose eyes a rejected person is despised. Rejected? Rejected by who? Rejected by God. Well, I thought God loved everyone. I thought we were all God's children. Well, yes, Scriptures tell us that God, God loves us and He sent His Son to die for us. But this is saying that there are some, as we know, there are some who continue, dig their heels in, their rebellion against God. They reject God through their words, through their actions, through their decisions, through their lives. And if that continues, 
As they reject God, scriptures teach us that God then rejects them, that they've rejected God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And so what this is saying is that the godly, we, we despise that. We, we hate what God hates. We reject what God rejects. But we honor those who fear the Lord. We honor those we make much of. We celebrate what God honors, what God upholds. So we find ourselves not, like the godly, do not rejoice in, enthusiastically support, condone, enable, or encourage those things that God hates. But rather, we rejoice in, we celebrate, we make much of, we enable, we encourage those things that God rejoices in, that God makes much of, that God loves. And then the last line of verse 4, the eighth characteristic says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, this is not saying that uh, it's, a, it's an odd phrasing, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who, it doesn't mean you swear that you've been hurt and you're not going to change. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change means you've sworn, you've committed, you've made a commitment. And uh, even if it causes you pain, even if it hurts you, you're not going to change your word. You're not going to go back on a commitment. But the righteous are those who honor their word. Their yes means yes. Their no means no. Now, in a um, culture, in a day and age where FOMO is going around, you know, the fear of missing out, um, we're pretty non-committal. You know, we want to keep our options open. We want to wait to the last minute just in case something better comes up. But this implies... You know, the presupposition is that the godly actually make commitments in some form or fashion, and that they're going to honor those. It is easy to honor a commitment when it works to your benefit. It's not as easy to honor a commitment when it starts to hurt or it begins to be painful. Uh, AJ and I were um, meeting with a, a couple who were uh, about to become covenant members of Missio Church, and I was reminded of this line he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And uh, as we were just reflecting on and, and considering uh, membership at Missio, how in, in some ways it's a, it's a commitment to one another. Now, you don't need that commitment. You don't need to be a covenant member to uh, be a follower of Christ. But, but it is a commitment. It's, it's saying, um, I'm committed to love one another in this local body. I'm committed to care for one another. I'm committed to practice hospitality with one another. I'm committed to strengthen one another, care for one another, love one another. If necessary, like rebuke one another. And uh, for those of us that are in relationships with uh, other believers and other members of this church, like that's not always easy. And there are, I don't know if you know this, there are a lot of sinners in this church, myself included. It's not easy to uh, make commitments to one another when... Um, they're not always the easiest people to be around. Well, they don't always do things that you think they should be doing. And yet, we're going to swear to our own hurt, and we're not going to change. And the psalmist continues this list outlining character, characteristics of righteousness. 
And he concludes it with the first two lines in verse 5, and this has to do with money. Nine, he does not put out his uh, money at interest. And then characteristic 10, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Here's a summary statement for those two. For the righteous, people are more important than money. The godly put people before money. Now, some have taken the first line of verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. To me, like, all interest is bad. I don't think that's necessarily the case. What this is saying is that the righteous, the godly, those who dwell in God's presence, um, they don't see someone in need and determine to take further advantage of them or put them in a worse position in order for themselves to um, have a little bit of benefit. They put people before money. They're not going to squash someone else or push someone down a little bit further so that they could be advanced a little bit farther. He says he, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. I mean, the godly person cares about where their money comes from. You can't pay them to say that they saw something they didn't see. You can't pay them to rule against evidence. You will not accept money at the expense of another person. It puts people before money. Those are the ten characteristics. That's the answer to the question of who can sojourn in your tent, who can dwell on your holy hill. As we're, I hope that as we were reading those and listing those, um, we're evaluating how we measure up. I mean, how do you measure up? I mean, as I, as I think about myself, I mean, I know I fall desperately short. I mean, do I always walk blamelessly? Do I always do what is right? Do I always speak truth in my heart? Have I never slandered with my tongue? Have I done evil to my neighbor? Have I taken up a reproach against my friend? Have I put money before people? Have I gone back on my word? I mean, all those type of things we should be asking ourselves. And, and so though we have the right question, who can dwell in your presence? Who can live on your holy hill? I mean, the answer, honestly, is terrifying. In and of ourselves, none of us can. We don't have enough merit. We don't have enough righteousness in and of ourselves. There's only one person who ultimately and completely measures up to these ten characteristics. That is the person of Jesus Christ. We saw the question, saw the answer. This is the fulfillment. Only Christ has lived a completely blameless life. Only Christ always did what is right. Only Christ always spoke truth in His heart. First uh, Peter Chapter 2, verses 22 said, He committed no sin, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. He did no evil to his neighbors. He didn't take up a reproach against his friends. Rather, he laid down his life for his friends. And he was accepted, the sacrifice was accepted 
by God because of Christ's sinlessness, because of His perfect righteousness. So then we can say, well, that's good for Him. No, that's good for us. Because of who Christ was and what He accomplished, that perfect righteousness now, for those of us who are in Christ, is now credited to us. It's imputed to us. Christ's righteousness in the eyes of God is now our righteousness. We meet the standards of Psalm 15 because of what Christ has done, because of how Christ lived. That's the good news of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll say it again. For our sake, He made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we, in Christ, might become the righteousness of God. So as we consider these five verses, this very important question and the answer formed in in ten characteristics There's a mistaken application to this psalm, and I think there's a right application to this psalm. The mistaken application would be this, that we read these ten characteristics, and we claim to be that person. We say, "Eh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good about speaking truth in my heart. I'm doing fine and not taking up a reproach against a neighbor. I honor my word. I don't go back on what I say. That would be the first mistaken application, that that we actually think we meet these qualifications, these characteristics. Second mistaken application would just be like apathy. The first is arrogance. The second is apathy. We don't really care about the question. We don't think the question of who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, who can be in your presence, God, who can have fellowship with you. I mean, we think it should be important, but we don't really care. I mean, we're more interested in the AFC and NFC Championship game this afternoon than that question. We're more interested in who's going to win those games. We're more interested in our Netflix queue or some of the next recommendations or what's streaming on television. We're more interested in that work project. I mean, that consumed our thoughts over the last 30 minutes more than who may dwell in God's presence. We're more interested in our 401K's performance. I mean, you insert the idol here that displaces the affection and the desire and the consideration for the question in 15.1, and we care more about other things. Arrogance, apathy, and then the third mistaken application is we just try to white-knuckle it. Like we think, okay, Thomas the Train, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I am going to do it. I will do better this afternoon. I will do better tomorrow morning. This week is going to be different, and I'm going to do these things. I'm going to pick myself up by the bootstraps, and I am going to figure out a way to swear to my own herd and not change. I'm going to figure out a way to place people over money. I didn't do that good last week, but I'm going to do better this week. Those would be the mistaken applications. But the right applications, as we're considering the truths of this psalm, firstly, there should be like a a, a desperation as we hear the characteristics, I mean, we, we should be filled in some sense, not that we end here, but, but immediately we should be filled with some sense of despair. I mean, we are utterly on our own, excluded, apart from, separate from 
the presence of God. We are excluded from the only safe place on earth and for eternity. That's God's presence. So, first, we should be filled with despair, but then second, as I've already pointed to the fulfillment, I mean, we should then be overwhelmed with enormous gratitude for the grace of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus, who has credited to us, who are in Christ, His perfect righteousness. So we can dwell in God's presence. We can remain and be secure in His presence. And then thirdly, the right application, then not the exact opposite of picking ourselves up by the bootstraps or trying to white-knuckle it or trying to do better, but rather by grace to grace and strength to strength by the enabling power of God's Holy Spirit, we, like the language Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1, through the power that works in us, though we toil, powerfully works in us, and we seek to press into God, we seek to mature, albeit not sinlessly perfect, but mature and conform and grow in these characteristics that we might be able to say, Lord, I, I pray that I would continue to mature and grow in honoring my word, making commitments. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to walk blameless. I pray that you would keep me from doing evil to my neighbor. God, I pray that I would care more about people than money and my own security and my own materialism, that, that fantastic American sin. And that through the Spirit's enabling power that we would continue by God's grace, mature and conform to the image of Christ. The question, the answer to the fulfillment and then lastly, the last line of the psalm, notice the promise. Verse 15, the very last line. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. Never be moved how? Never be moved to where? He who does these things shall never be moved from God's dwelling presence. We, he who does these things shall never be moved from the presence, the security, the safety, the comfort, as Nate talked about, the rest, the peace that transcends all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, will never be moved from the presence of of God as we can confidently draw near to Him and know that we'll never be moved from the only secure place for now and eternity. May we turn to Christ as the perfect fulfillment of these things. May we trust in Christ who credits us His righteousness for all who believe in Him. 
And may we continue to grow in grace and godliness and holiness and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not deceive ourselves to think that we line up pretty well. Certainly we have good days, but as we consider these ten characteristics of what it takes to really dwell in your presence, that we wouldn't deceive ourselves to think that we're, we're doing okay. Father, if we don't care about the question, how can we dwell in your presence? that doesn't stir our affections, I pray that you would use this truth to stir our affections for you. Father, protect us from thinking that we can do this or perform better in our own strength. Rather, Father, may we be filled with enormous gratitude for the atonement, for Christ being our substitute, for Christ crediting His righteousness to us. And may we continue to grow in these things. May we continue to mature in these things. May we be quick to confess and quick to repent and quick to press into you. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen.